Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to a film roundtable chat. Uh, my name is Erin Weil. I'm one of the co-founders of Film Roundtable. And uh, recording this session on December 26, 2020. Um, I'm thrilled to introduce our guests today. Um, we have production designer extraordinaire, the lovely Inval Weinberg. And we have the magical cinematographer and lovely Jody Lee Lipes. And this is where our audience, audience goes wild. Wow. So <laughs> um, before we get started, uh, I'm going to take a moment to do uh, or a pause to do a moment of silence. Um, we'd like to honor all of the 1,761,242 reported worldwide COVID deaths as of today. There are 330,000 deaths in the US alone. I was like looking at my notes this morning from the last roundtable I did with Brady and Mona on the 7th of November, and it's gone up 500,000 in the world since then, which was just a little over a month ago. So it's pretty, pretty astonishing. Um, and we'd also like to honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters and our First Nation brothers and sisters whose lives have been taken by the hands of police brutality and other senseless acts of violence. So let's take a moment. Thank you, everyone. Um, we've been holding these moments of silence since we began the Film Roundtable back in July, I think. And it's important to hold this awareness on how the virus is um, affecting everyone in so many lives in so many different ways, um, you know, including death, the loss of life. So um, as we return to work and find ourselves on set, um, we must do so with safety and empathy for others. So. All right, um, so to kick off this conversation, I'm, I'm gonna have uh, Inval and Jody kind of take it on their own as they've had you know, re relationship now for over 20 years and really deep friendship. So I think we'll have a nice conversation with just the two of them. Um, so I might just start them off by just telling us a little bit about how they met um, so maybe Inval, you wanna, do you wanna start off the convo? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I love talking to Jody on mm. a daily, weekly basis, especially this year, we've been taking socially distanced walks together. So this is another round. Um, and yeah, so Jody and I met at NYU film school. I think maybe my, the best thing that happened to me from going to NYU was getting to know this amazing group of people. We made films together and, you know, student films together and we were good friends and we continued to collaborate after school, um, after we graduated um, and we're all still friends. So I find that kind of amazing um, after so many years. And yeah, I think, you know, I don't remember exactly how we met, 
but I do know that like at some point there was this distinction among our group of friends like most people wanted to be writers directors coming into film school and then by maybe the last year some of us emerged as more craft-minded and Jody was definitely like the cinematographer in the group that's how I remember thinking about him early on and I was the product I was always the production designer kind of from when I even started school because it's really what I wanted to do so yeah I guess I'm wondering Jody what what was your path in honing in on cinematography during those years um well I think you know I worked as you probably remember I worked in like the equipment cage and the repair shop at NYU so I think because of that you just sort of you know the equipment a little bit and so people kind of latch on to you you know there's that moment where you have to like take a camera out and use it for the first time and so it's like if somebody knows how to use it before you take it out you kind of end up relying on them or feeling like uh safer because like they kind of know how to do it especially when you're shooting 16 or like we were um 16 millimeter it's a little scary to sort of screw it up because there might not be anything there. So, yeah, so I think that was part of it. And then, you know, it's like, you also have more access to equipment. So I think I kind of got like, it wasn't really a choice so much, but it was like, because I had that knowledge, people kind of asked me to be in that role. Um, but I remember, I also don't remember the moment that we met each other, but I do remember that of anyone who I went to school with, um, you were the only person that I knew who literally from the first day, freshman year in 2000, was like, I'm a production, hi, I'm in Bono Production Center. And that you were working on thesis films I think when we were freshmen you were working on thesis films as a production designer which was totally sort of unheard of and just not normal because it was you know a senior isn't going to want to rely on a freshman to to you know be in charge of their thesis film um but for some reason you were able to <laughs> fill that role and you right away I don't know how I never really have understood how that happened I mean I think part of it was that we went to film school nobody there wanted to be a production designer you know so similar to how you described it it's like well there's you know somebody has to do it and nobody kind of wants to so I think I got lucky in that respect um but I also but why, but why did you want to what I mean, why did I want to be a designer or why yeah. did I want to work? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know me, right? Like I made these decisions in my life and they just, that's kind of how I am. But early on, you know, I grew up in Israel and I went to a very prestigious art high school and for fine arts. And, you know, when I was in high school, I really fell in love with film which I always loved, but then in high school, it became like almost an obsession. And so I was trying to figure out how to incorporate 
my love for fine arts and my obsession with film, I kind of knew I was never going to be like an artist that exhibits in, you know, or like I didn't really have that urge, but I just wanted to make films. And I mean, I literally just made this decision based on the, I saw the credit production designer rolling every time I saw a film and I just decided that was that. But there was, it was pre-internet. So there was really no way to establish that that's actually <laughs> what I thought it was. Like, um, I actually remember going to the, Uni to the Tel Aviv University's library trying to find a book about production design. There was nothing. It was like a 1950s book with yellowing pages about what people do in film behind the camera, you know? So I kind of had no idea. And I sort of assumed certain things. And strangely, those things were exactly what the profession is. I don't know, you know? Like I, I didn't really know what it was even at NYU, so much of our profession is really hands-on and being on set and figuring it out as you go. Um, and I think perhaps there's, you know, there's probably stage design, you know, you could go, you can learn it through set design or stage design or architecture. But I just wanted to go to film school. So I think that was a bit of a, a strange way to go about it it was much more practical, you know? So it was through those um, working on student films and also taking, I mean, you know, I went to the chair of film school before I even got accepted and I told him I wanted to be a production designer. So when I, when I finally got into NYU, it was like, okay, what classes can I take for production design? You know, I kind of, I was able to build my own schedule working with the, theater department and film studies and I kind of made my own curriculum in a way. I remember being on set I think the first time in my life at NYU when I was a freshman with with Lance our friend Lance Edmonds and we were like we felt like we were lucky that we were able to get um, in as uh, production assistants one day. And you were the production designer. I don't and have any. So, so it was like, there was, I don't know, there's something about how um, sure you, you were of yourself and also just how clear about like, this is the path that I'm going to take, I think. And also how good you are at it, that like all of those things together kind of got you there early and I think I think there's advantages from my perspective there's advantages to being so focused that way and then there's also advantages to not knowing right too because then you get to sort of like try different things and you get to see um the job maybe that you ultimately end up focusing on from different perspectives um but yeah. I think for, sorry good no, I mean, I think about that a lot because I do, I, I do have a lot of friends, most of our friends, who sort of meandered into what they finally decided they wanted to do. And I actually always wonder, like, which path is better? And I guess, I mean, it's completely personal, you know, and, uh, but I do, I, I have no doubt that my focus kind of accelerated my path. But at the same time, I don't know what I lost by not 
-hmm. you know, trying out different positions or even, you know, different, I don't know, different experiences in life before immediately kind of starting out like straight after school, you know? Yeah. Well, you're very hardcore just in all, <laughs> all ways. So I feel like that's a perfect... Uh... I mean, but just for some context, since I grew up in Israel and I like went to the army for two years, I came to NYU already in my 20s and, you know, NYU is super expensive, especially for foreign students. So I wasn't in the kind of college mode that most American students mm -hmm. go into school with. You know, I was like, okay, I'm here for a purpose. Let's get this. You know, I, I graduated in three years because I was like, there's no way we can afford you know, this tuition. So I sort of, I was a little more focused in my life in general. I'd already spent like a year in New York working as a waitress and like living the immigrant life. Um, but, you know, I also had this realization through school that it's such a creative environment for kids that are like 18 or 19 that come from whatever small neighborhood or small town in the U.S. And that is their first real experience. You know, I thought about it a lot because at first I was confused. I felt that everyone is very accepting, that professors are super accepting of people's first trials and errors. And, you know, I came from a much more, I don't know if strict, but like the uh, different way of different educational system in a way. Mm -hmm. And, at first I was kind of confused by it. And afterwards, when I thought of it, I thought that it's a really enriching environment to be taking your first experimental steps in as a filmmaker. I don't know, did you feel that? Um, you mean at NYU specifically? Or? I don't know, I never went to another school, but just, the, just I guess, a kind of a, a college setting or a, a liberal arts university or, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I had really mixed feelings about being at NYU. I think I felt like, I mean, I was working the whole time. I was working even before classes started. I started working to help, you know, pay tuition and stuff. But like, I felt like there it was unfair or something that there was so much um, emphasis put on. Like, this is a job and it's gonna be really hard and it's so competitive, you're never gonna make it. And that that was maybe just cause I worry, that was like a big part of how I felt while I was at school, instead of it being like, I can just fuck around and play around. It was, it was like, that was like less of how I felt. Um, I felt more like at a certain point, it's like, how am I gonna get a job? Um, and for me, I think maybe the most formative experience the whole time I was at school was working on the Todd Sloan's movie Palindromes, which you also worked on. As, as I'm sort of going through this and realizing like so much of our lives have overlapped, but that like working, that was the first movie that I ever was around. Um, and we both were kind of doing a lot on that movie for how underqualified we both were. Um, the laws have changed since then, so you're not really allowed to use interns that way anymore. 
but you know, I was the loader. I eventually <clears throat> worked in the lighting department um, and you were working under Dave Dornberg. Um, but like, I, yeah, that was like, oh, this is a movie. Yeah. And that to me was like the hugest sort of earth shattering mm -hmm. moment of being in film school, even though it had nothing to do with film school. Yeah, that's really interesting. I also consider that experience really formative. And, you know, whenever I, you know, I'm ambivalent about NYU as well, because I don't think that any university, even the best university in the world is worth the money that we paid for our education. So I am kind of conflicted about it. But whenever I think about what it had given me besides my friends and an amazing circle of collaborators is those opportunities that we don't always connect um, with school, but all of my first internships were because I knew people at the school and they had recommended me and so on. And the Todd Solans film, you know, I was about to graduate. And I, again, like you, I had this like horrible fear, like, oh my God, I'm gonna graduate and live in a box on the street. Cause I didn't even have an apartment. I'm not even American citizen, you know, and I didn't, how am I gonna find my first job? And there was this rumor at NYU that Todd Solans is making a new film. He doesn't have any money and he's only gonna use interns from Columbia and NYU. I think that was something like the rumor that was going around. And um, we had this, um, we had this film professor, he's really, really well-known Arnie Baskin, kind of like a crazy character. Um, that sort of embodied the spirit of uh, some of the film school. Um, and I was like, okay, if anybody knows about this, it would be Arnie. And so I went, uh, you know, I knocked on his door and I was like, Arnie, I hear there's a Todd Salons film happening and they're just taking interns, please. Like I was, I mean, uh, Todd Salons was my hero. I was like, please, I will do anything on that film. It's like, are you sure? Like you want to work for no pay? It's probably going to be difficult. And I was like, no, I will like wash the floors on that film. And he literally, oh, he's like, okay, one second. And he rolled his desk chair to the little black phone. He, he picked it up, he rang and he's like, Todd, there's a girl here who wants to work on your movie. And that was, that was that. Like, I mean, it was- That's incredible. And I had no idea that Todd Salons went to our school, then became like Arnie's buddy and they would like have lunch once a week or something. I mean, I didn't even know. It yeah. was, so that was amazing. And then like fast forward, like weeks or whatever, my first time ever coming up to the location, Todd Salons comes out of a door and he's like, ah, the famous Inval, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I like almost fainted and so I do still think of the school, you know I was like uh yeah the school gave me that in a way you know that phone call was magical yeah 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 I guess that was the first time I'm trying to think it's probably the first time that I ever like met someone that I thought was like famous you know like in retrospect I mean, obviously Todd is an incredible filmmaker. He's not really like famous, but you know, it, yeah, it, I, it was kind of like the first time I had to sort of like act normal 
in front of someone who I was like, didn't felt like not worthy to be in the same room as. And I think the first time, I think we were just riding back from location to the city in a car together, just cause it was like cheaper than them putting me on a train or whatever. And yeah, so that was a big education too. And then I was sort of responsible for moving Todd's monitor around for a lot of the shoots. So I would just sit next to him a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was, it was sort of the first, you know, every time you do, or every time I do a movie, it's like, you're learning like, oh, this is what a movie is like. And it every time you do one, like the last movie that we did together, it changes what a movie can be and what it is in your mind. And so this is sort of like the first block of that and my only perspective of it. So then I, then I learned lots of horrible habits from being in that environment and get some good ones. But um, yeah, because you walk away and you're like, oh, I know what movies are like now. I mean, right. it's funny because that experience was extremely challenging and super unorthodox. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I think I had a hard time a lot of the time. First of all, I think I was a bit cocky about how much I knew coming out of film school, especially NYU. That's kind of a classic. But, the, like, but this was even like before coming out of school. This was right. like in the middle of school. Right. Or for me, it was. Yeah. Right. But still, it's a bit like, um, I mean, it's funny because now when I interview interns, I always know that the NYU kids are going to be the cockiest, you know, right. <laughs> like it's just, but, and then, I mean, realizing that not only do you not know everything, well, you basically don't know anything. And mm -hmm. also that a film, so much of it is about your relationship with the 50 or 70 or 100 people around you. And it's not really so much about your skills at times, you know, or it's about your people skills as much as it's about your design yeah. skills. So a lot of that, perhaps also because I feel like a lot of my first films, um, I have much more, I have memories of my relationships with people more than of my like, you know, success in specific design things, you know, mm -hmm. it's so much because I also think when we're younger, we're more, emotional in a way and maybe I yeah. still am but um but so much of that show was about I mean the learning had to do with people's characters and kind I remember I remember it being kind of dramatic for me emotionally yeah um it definitely was I think just for like personal reasons more than I think like I had I had really good bosses who kind of involved me in a way that was beyond probably what they should have, you know, the, you know, so I felt very like I was learning a lot. I was being trusted. Um, and I could really get close, you know, so that was just super super valuable and then like a lot of our friends were there too so it was like um it wasn't like just being alone in this group you know it was like there was several people from our class and there were you know I was like sharing a room with my roommate from college right Lance again and so yeah but I, I know what you mean and I think also like yeah it, it can be 
competitive. It can be, especially, I think, if, like, someone as talented as you are, who obviously, like, it, you know, came to pass that you were, like, very successful at what you do, and then, like, to be put in that situation, think you know a lot, and then your boss is like, excuse me? Like, I, I, rem <laughs> I remember once I... I brought, I was trying to learn. So I brought my light meter to set and I was like reading a couple of the lights and the gaffer who again was like incredible and taught me so much. So sort of like put that away. And I was like, what? And he was like, don't let anybody see you doing that. That's like very disrespectful. And I kind of, you know, that's a matter of opinion like some people might be totally fine with that but I think the fact that like I felt okay just walking around and doing that is sort of like double checking like my boss's 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 work or whatever what is how it could appear um that was a real lesson and I could see how like if that had gone like a little bit differently it could have been like very very traumatic and also I you know I was the loader and I didn't I had never loaded anything and, you know, one day the, you know, producers pulled me aside and said, you know, footage from yesterday is there's something wrong with it. It seems like it got flashed. Like I had exposed the footage that we shot by mistake. Um, and Tom, the DP came over to me and was like, Hey, I don't really, I think it was the lab. I don't think it was you, but like, we'll see. And then the producers made an announcement in front of the whole crew that um, basically that I had ruined the day's material. We had to go back and shoot um, that day again. And I, I mean, that could have been like it for, like I could have stopped and like, you know, that could have been so um, difficult or like people could have treated me in a way where I just was, you know, never came back to work but people were pretty cool about it. I still don't think it was my fault, but maybe it was, who knows. But like, regardless, it just sort of like, we just kept going and it was fine. Um, but that so easily could have been like this scar that I never got over and maybe I decided to do something else with my life. So I, I hear what you're saying and yeah, it was, you know, you're always kind of on that razor's edge, even now, like, you know, when I go into work, so. Yeah, in a way, you know, like when I think of the lessons from that, let's say first formative experience is that, you know, I learned that making films is an insane adventure, which still is to this day. You know, I learned that making it with friends is incredible because we had all of our friends, not all, but many friends on that shoot. And I also learned that it can be really, really hard. And yet it's like the... I can't think of anything that I prefer to do. I've never been on an easy shoot, you know, even my smoothest, most collaborative shoot still had really, really difficult moments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wouldn't even occur to me to doubt that, that you know, the validity of that experience. It's like, you know, it, it, they, it goes together. Like, it really is so satisfying because you're really laboring through it. I don't know if that's, Obviously, we shouldn't be miserable when we're working. Um, but at the same time, so, you know, I have colleagues that say, oh, yeah, like my shoot is going really well. Everything is, yeah, 
and I just, I'm like, <laughs> I, like someone yeah, is having people. a miserable time. I don't know. Like maybe it's not you. I, yeah. I can't, I can't believe that there's shoots that just kind of go well. But maybe I just choose really difficult ones. <laughs> what do you think? And also, I think sometimes people want to communicate. They want it to be their story that like stuff's cool, you know? Right. But yeah, I agree. It's, it's always, there's always really hard parts of anything valuable. Um, I totally agree. But I was also just thinking that, you know, I think something maybe people don't talk about a lot that I find really fascinating. And I, I think like um, we have a lot of kind of overlap in regards to is agents. And I don't, I can't remember who signed with Rebecca first, probably you, but our first, I think our, both of our first agents was Rebecca Fayed and um, and then our now our current agents are the same. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how did that whole thing start for you? Because for me, it was like, and I think this is from talking to younger people over the last several years, you know, I feel like a lot of the time people are like, why don't I have an agent? I deserve one. Like there's, there's something wrong with me. Like they should, I should be signed. How come nobody knows? Like, why is this happening for a long time before they're actually ready to have one? And I know that was my experience too. And I think a lot of people that I talk to feel that way. Um, so I was just wondering, like, how did you, how did that go for you? Interesting. I mean, I don't know that my path actually would answer that question, but I have thought about it a lot. I mean, Rebecca actually found me because I worked on Frozen River, which I did really early on in my career and it won Sundance. So at Sundance, she approached me and, and I- And what, what year was that? That's a good question. 2005? So it was like two years. So you did that maybe like the year after you graduated from school? Pretty much a year or two. I mean, it was a tiny, tiny, tiny film, you know, but I always go by scripts and it was a beautiful script and it was a great opportunity for me. I mean, I- But how did you even like get that film? I don't really know. I mean, listen, my path is a little magical. I'm like, the reason I went to film school is because is because of the filmmaker, Hal Hartley, you know? It, I, he was, he got me through my teenage years, I was, I, his films were the reason why I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then I found him when I got to New York and I was, I became his intern. And then we stayed friends. And then literally the year after I graduated, I went to dinner with him and I told him all these stories about me doing art PA gigs. And he's like, do you want to design my next film? <laughs> it just went like that you know it was a tiny movie and he was looking for someone which which film was that it's called the girl from monday right um so i mean i can't think of a better trajectory i mean he's he's the reason why i'm even in this industry and i i love him so much um but anyway so that happened and i was an art director on a few films like i art director half nelson and um, you know, I tried to make, of course, when you start out, you can't really make career decisions. You kind of take whatever mm -hmm. comes. And I definitely worked on some pretty strange things. I was an art PA for a long time. I was doing a bunch of random gigs, but, um, 
but so I, I kind of don't know how the producers of that film got to me. Uh, it's a, actually a good question. I don't actually know. But I read the script and I immediately knew it was it was amazing. Um, and anyway, so once the film won the festival, Rebecca found me and I was kind of, I was like, oh, how amazing, you know, like being courted. Like I didn't have, I was like, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm in. By, by like maybe the best agent. That's like, the thing that whatever. was so crazy is like, <laughs> I mean, we have such similar character and I love Rebecca yeah. so much. I can't think of many other agents that I would work so well with, you know, like, she was such a straight shooter, you know, and she would tell you immediately when she thought something was not good. Like, you know, she never believed the buzz and I'm exactly the same way. So we, we completely connected on a sort of, because the thing about an, people don't think that an agent needs to have your taste in film, which is probably- Well, maybe, maybe it's good because I think, you know, obviously some people who watch this know a lot about this stuff and don't care. But I think there's a lot of people also who it's like, oh yeah, I know what an agent is, but probably don't totally. Could you talk about like what you think an agent does or like I what mean, they do that's, for you? Yeah, that's what I think I've been super lucky, you know, with Rebecca and of course our agent now, Grant Ellis, who is, you know, become one of my best friends. Um, and I speak to him for hours every week about films. But I think that people, you know, maybe the ones you've spoken about who have started out and wondering why is no one calling me? Like, why do I not have an agent? There is a bit of a misconception about what an agent can do for you because at the end of the day, it's all about you. You're the one that is gonna get yourself the job. Maybe an agent can open a a door slightly in like some unusual situation but it's almost never up to them you know like your resume and your character is going to actually get you the job so I think that even when people sign with an agent a lot of colleagues anticipate like this rags to riches moment where overnight you receive offers from, you know, of the, you know, biggest films in Hollywood. And I have a lot of colleagues who say like, you know, I signed with this agency and now I'm like at the bottom of their list and I get these like really bad scripts. And I want to say like, listen, we're all getting bad scripts because that's the sad part of our industry. There is not a lot of good ones. And I'm sure the best DPs are also getting, the best production designers are getting really bad scripts. It's not for your to blame your agent, you know, but, and if you want to get specific projects, you have to, I mean, the best thing is for you and your agent to have a strategy that you agree on about how to get those jobs. Like, do you, if you want to make huge sci-fi films, where do you start? If you want to make intimate family dramas, where do you start? If you want to work with auteurs, like, so I think that it's about a relationship with somebody that you really trust and someone that you feel like is under, understands what you want to do. If you don't know yourself, then it's for you to figure out before you like throw that responsibility onto someone else. So I think that's a little bit like, um, yeah, something that colleagues maybe they love complaining about the fact that they're not, they don't feel like they get what they deserve with a certain agent or an agency. But a lot of times I'm like, you have to, there's more, it's a, 
you know, a two-way street, but actually it's more about you than about, I, I think that the best case scenario is you, you, have an, uh, you have a director you really want to work with and you keep, you know, tabs and you make sure your agent also knows that and keeps tabs and together you kind of can form some sort of strategy about how to be in that person's circle for whatever their projects are. And beyond that, I think that to me, it's like you, you do need to really like your agent and, and have a very good relationship with them because they should be thinking of you whenever the right project for you comes along because they probably represent like 50, 100 other people who are just as good as you and as wonderful and as skilled. So for a project to come in that is supposed to be yours, like they should be like, oh, right, you know, Jody, Jody would really be great for this. And so for that instinct to kick in, I think that that's again up to you. You need to maintain that relationship and the, you need to really share with your agent what it is that you're about. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's really true. I also think that like a, a good agent relationship is like, you know, there's ups and downs, obviously, and there's like lulls and there's, you know, times like this year where it's like a totally different ball game, right? And I think one thing that can be really helpful is like keeping each other in check or like giving each other perspective. So it's like sometimes it's sort of like, oh, I should probably do a movie and like, that's not where you wanna be making your choices. You know, so it's like, if, you, if you've really communicated with each other about like what you think you want and what's possible and like where you wanna go in those sort of darker moments or those moments of like, we're maybe gonna be making decisions out of insecurity rather than like clarity, I think, for both of you know go either of you could be making those decisions that you can kind of put yourself give give the other person perspective and be like that's not no like that's not right you know because that's not going to get here or that's not that's not the kind of movie that we want to be doing um and i think grant is really great at that it's sort of like the older you get at and like the more experienced you, you become I think like the more factors you kind of start to see in each project as opposed to like this script is good, which is like, obviously, I mean, I think for both of us is like the most important thing, but then there's like a lot of other things that you start to see, which can be like overcomplicate things and make it, you know, weird in that way, but it can also be like putting you in a position where you're making better choices for yourself. Like you're able to like see forward a little bit more um completely and i mean yeah. there's also of course where you are in your life personally and yeah. people who you're responsible for and you know financially so of course your decision making process could change based on your priorities and your life changing mm -hmm. and your agent definitely should be should know that but you know it's interesting because i i talk to colleagues a lot about sort of career building which is 
I don't know what you would actually call it because I'm not sure how much control you have, we have over building our careers, especially because <laughs> the industry, it's such an unpredictable industry that it's very, very hard to feel like you're able to navigate anything really. Yeah. Um, but I do think often, and it's something that I, I thought of asking you in this conversation is that I sometimes feel that DPs have a little more flexibility in the projects they can choose because in a way, you know, you can get a lot of acknowledgement from your peers or audiences, whether you're shooting like a huge epic period film or <laughs> an intimate drama. And in a way, I think that production design is a little more traditional where the recognition is sort of built on, you know, okay, the platform, like, oh, this film is a period piece and there's a lot of sets or you get to build a huge street from scratch. And I mean, those are all amazing achievements that should be celebrated. But the way I view it, it's like they're just as valuable as if you're making a very small indie film and the most important set is someone's kitchen and you're designing that kitchen. But in terms of the way that the industry views it, I do think most of the production design careers that I, that I see successful production designers have is they're slowly rising with the Scale. budget level. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the films are gonna be good. I mean, if you're super lucky in your life, you get to work on big, really good movies, but that's pretty rare. And I often actually look at DP careers as where the way I would like to do it. You know, I think that, that you could make these decisions between the type of projects more easily. But is that just, what do you? I don't know, maybe. I mean, I think that scale is definitely still a big factor for a DP. I also think it's like, really easy to get pigeonholed just the same way it is for anybody else. I've worked really hard to try to make different kinds of films so that, uh, you know, I'm not just seen one way or I don't just get like one kind of script. Um, but yeah, scale is, is definitely a thing for DPs and like, you know, there's the thing of like, oh, well, this is like a visual effects movie. It's like, you haven't done like a big visual effects movie. It's like, well, I mean, I know this much is true was like a hundred million dollar visual effects movie, but that doesn't count. Cause like we weren't shooting green screen all the time. You know, it's just like little things like that where yeah, you still get kind of stuck um, or you can get stuck. But no, I think, I think like, you know, it's just like in any other job, I'm sure it's like, it's super hard to like navigate to that next level or like to a different sort of like category of movie than, you, than you've done before. I think it's probably the same for both of us. That's my, my opinion, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think with time, I, I don't think I ever wanted to reach those big films as a personal, mm -hmm. you know, like film, goer it's not my films that I want to watch but I actually am seeing I thought that I would become more open to different kinds of things and I'm actually finding myself being more and more drawn to 
really adventurous storytelling mm -hmm. that is really pushing the envelope much more than like the mainstream film that could be very, very good and probably up for an Academy Award for best film, but is it, but it's like- I like, I like to call it, the thing I, is when I read something I'm not crazy about, like a lot of the time, the first word that comes to my mind when I know I'm like, oh, I have to call so-and-so and like tell them, you know, that this maybe isn't the right thing. The first word that comes to mind is soft. And I, and so like, I think maybe that's kind of a little bit of what you're talking about. It's like, it's not like bold enough or it's not like unique enough. It's not adventurous enough as an, a narrative or like formally or whatever that you can just kind of feel it on paper. Um, and that to me is kind of like the worst thing. It's like, I'd much rather go like really out there and it not be and it's like, it could be a disaster then to make something that's like, oh yeah, this is probably gonna get like nominated for best picture. It's like, not that that's a bad thing, but like just that feeling of something, it's like, this is made to be that. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. Do you ever choose, I mean, I'm completely, I feel that same way. And I also feel that when I read a script, sometimes I read a script and it's horrible. And sometimes it's very, very good, but that almost never happens. They're usually in this gray zone of in between. And I usually feel when I read the script and it, it's like a little, a little more adventurous than mainstream. And when I read it, I've learned from experience that it's always going to shift back to me. It's never going <laughs> to. Well, it depends. Yeah, it depends who's making it so much, right? But yeah, I think that's yeah. the fear. That's the fear. Um, I mean, you, have you yeah. ever taken a project because you felt like the cinematography is going to be very special? Because people ask me all the time, no. like, oh, wouldn't you take it if it's like a 1920s film? And I'm like, absolutely not. Who cares, you know? Not, not yet. We'll see what happens, but I mean, I think I know myself well enough to know that that's not going to be enough. That it's going to be difficult for me to to make it through if I don't really have faith in the story as a whole and all the people that I'm making it with. And you know, it's one thing on a commercial or something, you know, where it's a shorter much shorter run and it doesn't have to be as much of you going into it. Um but like on a feature length film or even like a pilot or a TV show, I just, I don't think it's worth it. If I didn't also do commercials, you know, um, where like I also, you know, I can make a living doing that, it would be, I'd have less of a choice about which projects I take narratively. But like I take big, you know, gaps between projects a lot of time, which some people think is just like career death. And I can, you know, sometimes I have that fear, but it's more because I know myself well enough to know, like, I can't, if I don't really have faith in something, it's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for the people around me. It's not going to be good for the film. Um, and so, yeah, I try to have total faith. To me, it's like, if a movie looks great, I don't care. I don't want to watch it because of that. That's not enough right I mean 
Oh, completely. I mean, my favorite films are by filmmakers who usually like put their characters in front of white walls and there's just two people in a room and, you know. Um, so I agree completely. And I also think I, you know, when I watch my own films, I usually forget about my work if they're good, mm -hmm. you know, which is, mm -hmm. I, I'm so engrossed in the film itself that it's, it's like, even though I was on set, I kind of, it's as if I don't remember that anymore, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I just had to rewatch a bunch of stuff for some, you know, that I hadn't watched in years and years and years and years. It was interesting. To Did do you that. notice all of your, <laughs> you noticed all the scenes? Yeah, for sure. But also sometimes just being like, whoa, I can't believe I was that bold, especially at that age. Like I feel, sometimes I feel like more afraid now than I was then, which is just, you know, it's, I think, I think like there was a period where I kind of, came to the realization from working on certain projects that like the politics and the sort of the money and the logistics and all these things can take on a much bigger role than the project itself like than the creative side of the project and that was such a huge slap in the face and such a big betrayal to me that like i feel like this isn't how it's supposed to be and all this stuff um, and then there's, there's like residual effects from that. And it, ch it changes your perspective forever. And I think part of that is just being young and naive. And, but then like, after you go through those things and you learn how to kind of manage them better, um, then they can sort of take on less weight as you learn, but you have to go you have to go through it first. And it's like, what the fuck? Like why these people are making this decision based on that? Like why this, I'm the only person who like, you know, that kind of feeling, but you start to realize, you know, first of all, like you said, like some people are like taking care of their kids and that's all it's about. And that I respect that, but it's like, you have to kind of understand all of those. You have to understand where people are coming from. Um, so, yeah. So when I look back at things, I see myself like before knowing that and like working on projects with just like our friends and being like, well, I can't believe I underexposed that that much. That's crazy. You know, like, and then, you know, you come to this point where like, oh, there's adults here and they're like mad. And, <laughs> and it's like, and then you kind of can hopefully get through the other side. But then I'm sure, you know, it's like you spend your whole life working kind of ping ponging between feeling like more creative and more kind of like serving a machine, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know, but I'm assuming. I mean, it's interesting that you bring it up because, and I'm sure, I mean, obviously, you know, because in my, our relationships, like, especially on our last project, which was huge it didn't feel huge it felt intimate but it was like a really epic project and you know i have that exact structure that you're describing that sort of machine of making things it's it's hard for me to be part of that you know i'm suspicious of it and i i often don't feel comfortable in it 
like the hierarchy, the, the sense of finance that's moving things and people who are not actually your like indie spirit friends that are involved. And, um, and you know, when we were on our last project, you told me definitely a few times like that I shouldn't worry so much about certain things that it's, they're gonna work themselves out because the system is epic enough for certain things to kind of figure themselves out. And I tend to um, care too much about everything. Do you, and, do you mind, maybe, I don't wanna to get too specific, but do you mind like, just so people understand like an, a specific example of that, is there something you think of where you're like, why is this? Like I mean, this? I remember one of our conversations. And also we're, we're talking about, I know this much is true, which was right, HBO, right, and miniseries. Um, and I had like, I mean, it was a very intimate story and we made it with incredible people who were all about making an unconventional project. I think it's the best case scenario for anyone who wants to do something special on TV, you know, like, and I'm so grateful yeah. to have been on it and grateful to Derek and to HBO, all of it, you know, but at the same time, it's all of a sudden definitely a hierarchy and definitely the platform is just so much greater. Like everything is, uh, oh, you need four condors. Okay. Oh, we're going to change an entire street to look like 1920s. Okay. Like, you know, it's, it's somehow it's, it's grander. Um, and in, and then you start working with, you know, that's those, the people that work on that scale, it's not no longer mm -hmm. your friends from NYU, you know, um, I, I remember specifically one time when we were talking um, and it was about the budget, which I'm, I'm super frugal and I care so much about budget, which many colleagues, you know, don't feel like it's their responsibility. It's totally fine. It could go, you know, you can kind of give it to your art director to manage, or mm -hmm. you can let someone else do kind of the dirty work of having to talk to the producers. If you feel like you're going over budget, I'm always involved in all of that. And I was concerned, I don't remember what it was, that we were projected to go over a budget on certain sets because the requirements just blew up, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I was like, but you know, that's not the estimate that we had given before. Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna make it happen? And you were like, listen, this is a gigantic show made by a huge network that is run by a conglomerate and they will find the money if they want to make it happen. You know, it's not on you to figure it out, which is really good advice. It's very true. Um, but at the same time, I, I sort of don't know that I wanna give up that part of caring so much about everything. You feel like it's cheating? It's not so much <laughs> cheating, it's just my character. You know, like I, don't, I do feel like overall, I could care a little bit less and it would probably be best for everyone. You know, like I definitely know that. But care, but care about it's sort of like put to, responsible with money no i mean money is a little part of it it's it's kind of how much you i'm sure you know this because it involves any department head how much bandwidth you want to kind of give to certain like you know how much of your attention do you want to give to things because i have a hard time kind of rising above the detail and mm -hmm and say, oh, I have a department of 80 people. Like many people could make these decisions or 
make this set happen or you know i could probably show up two hours before and it'll be okay it may not be exactly how i want it you know and that's where a lot of my colleagues who i love and have kind of gone from indie film to much larger projects i talk to them a lot about this issue and they're like at some point you have got to make a decision you can't be involved in everything you're a you're going to work 24 hours a day which i do and then B, it's just, it's not good for your psyche, like your well-being. And also it's not good for your crew. You know, everything that people say is right. But like, I care, I love film so much. It's like, I want to be there in the essence of it, you know, in the moment of its creation. And when it gets printed on film, like I want to be there. So so my solution to this so far has been to sort of try to find my way between larger projects and smaller projects and not just in this trajectory of larger and larger things. And when we finished, I know this much is true, as amazing as it was, I really felt like I, it had been so overwhelming. And I was like, my next film just needs to be four people in a cargo van, you know, just give, give me one. And, you know, I went to shoot a film in Greece on a small island. I rode a scooter, you know, I had like a- It's so interesting apartment. because I, I felt kind of the opposite. I felt like I had just been through a war, you know, and I was like tougher and I could do anything. And so it wasn't that I needed to be something big, but I just felt like I am, I don't know if this is even a real word, but my friends from co college, my other friends from college, they're all musicians, were like tour tight. It's like you finish, you know, doing a tour and you're just like, you play like really well as a band. And I felt like, okay, I can, all these things that I felt like I never even wanted to try to deal with before. Um, like what? I was like ready, like directors who are, you know, so demanding that it would like crush the people who work for them. That I was like ready to- <laughs> Who are you talking about? Oh, you know, but, <laughs> but I, that I was like ready to, to do that. And um, so not just that like that that's different than how you felt, but like to me, scale, the scale of what we did because it came from a good place because it was all serving the story because it was about like creating a lot of times it's about creating freedom for the actors and for even for Derek for the director the scale of it is about like letting them do what they want to do and I think that freedom really paid off you know and then I also I think part of that conversation we were having about like don't worry about the money because you know, AT&T is fine. If they want to pay for this, they will. Is like, and I know you hate commercials, but from working on commercials, like that's where I learned that idea of like, okay, you go on a scout or you have a discussion about something. And ultimately like whether it's coming from the client or the agency or the director or the producer, whoever, like someone is kind of dreaming of this thing. And that like, before you go through the exercise of like constraining that 
dream, you just sort of say like, okay, so like assuming that we have all the money in the world, like assuming that there are no restrictions to what we can do here, like let's plan that and like the numbers will come in and then we can decide together if that's ridiculous. And if it is, there's probably like another way to do it or we can discuss like, if we don't do it this way, like these are the compromises. But that like, unless you present, unless you kind of don't flinch um, or, or rather like if you don't flinch and you go through it, like it's happening in sort of like a dream world, then that I think shows everyone like, yeah, okay, like let's, let's do it. And then you can scale it back. And I think that was kind of what doing years of commercials, what I learned from that, which I think is valuable. And then obviously like, there's times when that's inappropriate, but like on a show like this with like such a big dreamer at the helm, <laughs> I think like for me, it was like, yeah, just whatever we talk about, like assume that that's like a possibility and then we'll scale it back if we need to. And I think that was a lot of what you and I were talking about from both, both of our so, and what was so hard about it all the time because um, just the exercise of kind of like planning out something so big and elaborate can just take a lot of creative energy even when you know it's not really ever going to happen you know right, right 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 yeah I think what you're saying is super valuable and um, I think one thing that I did learn that's in that realm from our last show was that I found, for example, back to conversations about money or resources, that I suppose because it was such a huge, you know, it's a big network and it has a, some really deep pockets, then the conversations about actually we may go over budget or, oh, I need this amount of something, you know, um, they were always very respectful from the producers and mm -hmm. you know you always started out in a pleasant kind of cordial way discussing these things which to me was like such a surprise because when you work <laughs> on smaller things like the conversation is charged from the get-go and mm -hmm. so often without even realizing it the producers sort of generate this feeling of like us versus them with certain heads of departments or you feel like a me like usually on a smaller project you're given a budget or you're you know very early on giving your limitations about crew size or whatever it is and it's never adequate right so your first conversations with a production are usually fraught or perhaps not fraught but you I mean I've never gotten a you know any budget or resource list that I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I don't know how this happened. Um, and so what I learned from working with such amazing producers and um, that they I felt like they really wanted to give Derek what he wants and yeah. that they felt like there's a way to work it out. And I afterwards really thought about bringing that tone to any conversation regardless mm -hmm. of the budget level because the tone doesn't have to be connected to your resources like okay maybe you don't have the 70 80 million dollars that we had or whatever it was 
Maybe you have 600,000, but the tone of the conversation should be as pleasant. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the biggest indicators of an incredible producer is the timing of when they shut down an idea mm. or when they have to like rein it in or like make it more uh, sort of appropriate to like the scale of what you're doing. You know, it's the same thing as like you or I, just like you're saying, like listening to Derek and saying like, okay, so you want this whole town to be changed, you know, changed over or whatever. And then it's like, okay, great, let's plan that. And then like, once you actually do the work of planning it and present what it actually means, then it's sort of like Derek can say like, you know what, this is too this is like, it's gonna take how long? And it's like, how expensive? Like, that's ridiculous, we shouldn't do that. Like, let's make it smaller. And it's sort of like, by showing people and like a by a producer, like listening, you know, and not treating you like you're crazy, then, you know, they are respecting you. They're not shutting down the idea. And then through that process, then you can draw out like, oh, well, yeah. So that's obviously, that's ridiculous, it's too big. But like this part of that thing, we can do that part. And because of that, then this whole other idea opens up. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's so much of that is about timing, you know, and Jeff and Marshall and Greg and, you know, Lynette and all the producers on that film were so good at being respectful of these large, sometimes like ridiculous seeming requests and ideas that we had you know, we would bring to them. Um, yeah, and that's huge. It's so just not like feeling afraid to like say what you think is the right thing to do is not a good way to make movies. Um, it's not a good way to tell stories. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I also have so much respect for the way that they handled that whole year of our lives. But I think you bring up a good point is that it's reflected in how we work with directors. And I think one of my biggest journeys that I'm still on has been how to say no without saying no, or how not to say no immediately mm -hmm. when some super far-fetched idea is brought up by a director. And I've always had a hard time with that. I think it's perhaps because I'm very logistical in the way I think. I'm really practical. So immediately when an idea is brought up, my mind just starts going like, okay, this is gonna take how many days, how many people, the trucks, you know, like we're gonna need to go to that prop house. Like the whole thing is like immediately becoming like a project in my head. And it's very overwhelming at times, especially when you work with really visionary directors, which Thankfully, I've had the pleasure, <laughs> but in that moment, it doesn't feel like a pleasure. And, you know, I'm still working on it, of course, but I think I've gotten so much better at, at taking a moment and saying like, okay, let me think it through. Um, or, you know, I'm writing it down, you know, and not like, first of all, not to panic. <laughs> If you're able to not panic, but more importantly, do not show that you yes. are panicking. That's the key. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it becomes a lot of the time it's like, okay, we can do that, but it means this. Do you want to do this? 
right? Like, do you want to have less time? Like, ultimately, a lot of the time it comes down to those things. But it also helps you really choose your battles, you know? Because it's like, this is going to be really hard and way too expensive, and we need to do it. Yeah, Um, one of my best... And it means more when you always go through that whole exercise of, like, entertaining all the ideas. It means more when you are sure that something is essential. Completely. I mean, to me, it's almost in that split second of your reaction to an idea. Forget about that long process of trying to figure it out. Like in the moment, you know, I've seen it. Like if you're, you know, I can see if my expression even changes, I can see the director is immediately distrusting my distrust, you know, like it's so on a split second reaction thing. Yeah. And I I also very much understood it over time because, you know, when I bring up an idea to my crew and I see some sort of, which happens a lot because if crazy come to me, then I have to, you know, and then when I see their (laughs) distrust, I immediately get offended and also get kind of angry. Like, you guys well, can, are gonna do it no matter what so you better shape up you know <laughs> like, well i think yeah it's i i agree you know i was just working on a commercial and you know we talked about changing the idea a little bit more we had to dress an office a little bit more and it was the first day meeting the designer and as i was sort of explaining why we needed to do a little bit more like first day first hour scout it was kind of like, okay. And it's like, well, it feels like lazy to mm. not entertain the idea, even if you know it's never going to happen. And it feels like you're not really listening. And that's the worst part is, and I'm, I'm sure this is the case for directors dealing with a DP or a designer. If you don't really hear them out and really do the work, then it's like, you're not listening, you know? And that's just the worst relationship to get into. Like you want to be like a champion for the producer, the writer, the director, whoever is like above you. You wanna be like, they're like sending you in to like make this better and make it happen. You don't want them to feel like they're pushing you I mean, in certain ways they always have to push you, but like that you're a part of like the obstacle of like getting to where they want to go. That's, then it's like, okay, get rid of this person, like bring somebody in who's like gonna grease the wheels and not, you know, make this more challenging. And that's, yeah, it's so much of growing up in the business is like learning that. And I think also, I mean, you've always wanted to be a designer I've directed a little bit and like being on the other side of that and like walking into a location and saying like okay we're gonna make this into a video store and it's like it's really hard to get videotape boxes it's like like it's just (laughs) yeah like that is it's just such a like of all the things as a director that you're kind of like worried about you know it's like once you've been in those shoes, you're kind of, you know, it's frustrating to hear that. <laughs> I, I wanted to chime in a little bit here because that's definitely um, at producing for so Yeah, as a producer, um, I don't know how 
what it was about me or my experience or whatnot. Cause my, you know, I've been doing the working in the film business for so long and so many different roles before I became a producer. Um, but I always, whenever I start a job, um, take the DP aside or the production designer and, or the costume designer. And I'm like, Hey, you know, and I doing a lot of commercials, I've worked with many personalities and I was <laughs> definitely for a bit of my life before I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Uh, I was known as the producer who worked with the hardest directors, like the hardest. And I would always take the department heads aside and be like, Hey, you know, you can always come to me about anything. Like I'm open, like I'm here. Um, one thing I just suggest, like when we're out on the scout, you know, just entertain anything the director says, because it's just easier for the director to flow on their creative ideas when you just go along with them. And it might sound like the most crazy thing that you're never gonna be able to afford for your $15 budget, but just, you know, just say, yeah, sure, let's check it out. And you never have to be the person that has to go to that person director and say, I can't do this. Like, I'll do that. You yeah. know, and I think that's really good advice is just don't sh let it show that it's stressing you out. And, you know, then you talk about it later. And, and I think that most directors really appreciate that. There's definitely a few that don't ever take no for an answer, for sure. You know, I mean, but the majority of them, you know, just need to go through the process and are aware that some things aren't available to them. They just have to talk, you know, talk about it. I, we've worked together, what, two or three times, Aaron, I think, something like that. And yeah, yeah, not a lot, but I remember you saying things like that. I still remember yeah. like specific <laughs> conversations like, oh, this is Jody's person meeting this person. Okay. Let yeah. Me just give them a little like heads up about X, Y, and Z. And that's so helpful just to have a context, especially in short form, you're walking into a room, you're meeting someone literally for the first time and you're doing a tech scout in that moment, planning a shoot and you have yeah. like 30 minutes and then you have to leave and you just don't know who you're dealing with and you have to get really good at learning who people are really quickly. And so mm -hmm. like for a producer to kind of, who knows a filmmaker really well, um, or has worked with them before to come, or even you know, if come not. up to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Just who knows the reputation. Mm -hmm. I remember once I was shooting a, a music video with a, you know, you know, this is years ago. I, I was probably too young to be doing it. It was a very big music video with a really, really famous big director and a really, really established producer who'd both been working for like, you know, 35 years or whatever. And I went to meet the director at a hotel and to talk about it. And he wanted to shoot the video with like 20 something Alexas. And it was all in one, one room. <laughs> and so I was trying to convince him to use like 17 or something instead like to scale it back just slightly and I had like sort of he asked me to map it out so I like drew it for the drew it overhead and stuff and he wanted to use like more cameras and then he just like all of a sudden just like left and went up to his room and the producer came, like sat down next to me and was like hey just I just wanted to let you know you know this director directed the biggest music video ever made when he was 30 years old um, and then just started talking about something else, which was just like, a, I thought a cue to me, like, 
just do do what you're told like not in a mean way just sort of like there's a reason like don't fight this before you like try it you know and that was just such a valuable lesson that he didn't even say that out loud but it was Mm -hmm. like okay I get what that means thank you and you know he didn't sort of embarrass me by like chastising me he just sort of told me a story that illustrated what he was talking about but you know what can I say something I mean the stories you're telling are kind of the best case scenario but we all know that often department heads are kind of used as pawns a no saying pawns because producers don't want to be the no people Mm -hmm. I mean it happens on every shoot even with the best people and then on really tough shoots you know it happens all the time and I've been in really difficult situations where I'm just kind of left out there on my own, squeezed between these two, you know, sides and not being able to have someone back me up, you know? So I do think that a lot of department heads have had those experiences. um, And that's part of the fear of the wanting to say no or not knowing how to, you know, relate because the you go back to your office and the producer is calling you asking why you had a $15 lunch when your allowance is 12, you know? So, and then also about like very specific things like, oh, the director decided he wanted to like build a canal. And then the producers are like, oh no, no, we absolutely cannot do that. But they tell you, they're too afraid obviously Mm -hmm. to tell the director. So that's the more common power dynamic that I, no, I think it's unusual to find people like you, Aaron, and we also work together. So mm-hmm. I completely, you know, know how helpful it is. And I think, as I said before, I realized over time that it's not about the resources. It's really about the conversation. Like, of course, everybody recognizes that, that we only have, I don't know, $2 million to make this film. It's not um, a mystery. So let's all sit down together and figure out how to build this canal with the resources that we have. If we all figure out together that we can't, then it's our decision, you know, in unison. And if it's very, very important, then we all have to give up other things. And the other things don't necessarily have to be in the art department. Like you want the canal, cut a scene, cut half a shooting day, cut your Mm -hmm. extras. I think that it's always a bigger conversation. That's why I'm always super grateful to be brought into bigger conversations than just production design. And I feel like that happens to me on smaller films, which is perhaps why I do enjoy that because you have a larger view of the whole project and you're able to kind of say, okay, we're all sitting here together. All the people that have power to make decisions about this film and let's really figure out, like, is it important for us to shoot film? I mean, many times I've given up budgets so we could shoot film happily, you know, like, if we want to shoot film, then we have to, I don't know, cut a shooting day or cut, you know, the art department's budget or, and I feel like it's very valid to do that and that we should be looked at as collaborators that are just collaborators, regardless of our department. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I obviously haven't done as many movies as you you guys uh, at all, but um, when I did Weightless, uh, you know, we we were about a two million dollar movie, and we had literally we started shooting shooting even before we got greenlit. Like we had barely prepped the movie, but we it was so my instinct 
and we shot on film and had to make a lot of sacrifices, but it was so my instinct, like every day when we would figure out what we were going to have to cut for the next day, you know, to get through um, of just having all the department heads sit together and we would talk about like, okay, what is the most important thing in this scene? You know, is it, is it this, is it that? Like what, what, where can we take from? And, you know, the costume designer would be like, well, I don't think I really need to spend money on this. Or the production mm -hmm. designer was like, I think I could just do this. You know, like we, or Darren Liu, our cinematographer would, would say, maybe we can get away without doing that. And it was, it was so, it was just so great. I mean, it was, you know, to just be able to have that conversation as a group and make that time for it. So it's interesting that you said that because it was like, for me, it was just an instinct. I'm like, all right, let's all sit together and see what we're going to, uh, you know, how we're going to make this work and what works for Jaron and. Um, yeah, well, you're, you're like empowering everybody by having them involved in that conversation. Whereas mm -hmm. like some producers want to control that conversation mm -hmm. so that there aren't other influences right you know? and I think that's great that you do that and I, I feel the same way and I'm totally and I think involves this way too totally like okay great like let's find a simpler way mm -hmm. of doing this like what's essential like how do we like what's the scene about you know what's essential for the story yeah yeah, yeah, and I feel like when that conversation is less collaborative, it sort of naturally pits departments against each other mm. because it's like, well, how come he got this much and how come I don't have this? Or, you know, there's a bit of a doggy dog. Not that it's ever, I've never felt it very se seriously, but I know that it can happen. And when you go down the ranks in the department, it gets actually stronger because mm -hmm. people don't have the larger view of filmmaking and they think, well, we need more resources, which is probably true, but it feels like it's at the expense of someone, you know, like someone else has taken them. Whereas, you know, over the years, I think I've gotten a better perspective about filmmaking in general. Like I can really understand now many more factors than I used to. Mm -hmm. And I kind of can see a line producer's job better than I used to be able to. And so I often tell my crew, uh, listen, we, if there's, you know, that's not our money, you know, it's everyone's money, it's everyone's resources, and it's about the film being really good. So this is really not about our set. If we have to make a cheaper decision, or a more limiting decision about our set, so somebody else could have something else, it's, it's actually a beautiful thing. Um, so I think having that very collaborative conversation, it just, it contributes to a more positive vibe in general hmm. yeah um i have i have a couple questions um that i'd like to ask and they might be different for each of you i'm not sure yet but um for inball just listening to joe to her tell her tell her story at the beginning of this conversation and just how she was really dialed into what she wanted to do, you know, that she basically created a career for herself without even necessarily knowing exactly how it existed, uh, which is really, you know, interesting. Um, but I also, I'm just curious, like they, they say, and I don't know who they is, but they say that people change their careers on average of like five times in, in a lifetime. 
right? I'm leaving producing now. I'm leaving it because I just, I, I don't really like the business anymore. I love this. I love the people that I've met, but just talking about producers, it's a stressful freaking job. And I don't want to facilitate things for people anymore, you know, especially <clears throat> directors and their needs. I would love to see it as more like a collaborative and I would love to see the film business change and it not be such a hierarchy, you know, part of what we're doing here at Film Roundtable is kind of discussing these sort of topics. But, you know, Inbal, do you have, like, if you could do a dream, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? Like, what would you love to do? Because I think you love filmmaking, obviously, you love films, but I know the job itself stresses you out a little bit, right? Like, it yes, isn't absolutely, absolutely. anxiety-free. So if you could go into something that was anxiety-free, and that was just like, you were just like, ha, ah, what, what would it be? Do you have that? No, but that, I think does that dream. I mean, I think that the beautiful thing about our job is that we basically get to pick our schedule. And I mean, mm -hmm. Jody said that he takes time off. I'm the champion of taking time off. You know, I like easily don't work for months between projects. And that's my time. That's really the time where I'm, I enrich myself, you know, and I'm calm and I like, I'm home, I cook, I read books and I travel a lot. And I mean, I feel like I'm so lucky in my life to have that freedom. I mean, it's an amazingly privileged lifestyle. So I don't feel like there is another career I would want. I would want my life now, which is the job is really intense, but my personal life is, is pretty calm. And maybe I channel all of my, I mean, I say that a lot is that, you know, our lives are really hard to control. Like you have no idea what is going to happen. And often decisions are made for you or, you know, like life is very messy, but you can control every frame in a film. I could control every prop in my set, you know? Mm. So no wonder I give it such thought and like all the pressure and the stress because it's the one thing I can really control. Then my life is like, well, you know, we'll see what happens. Mm. Um, but I mean, yeah, so I don't think I would ever want another career. If I couldn't be a production designer, I'd probably go back to school for film studies. You know, I just, mm. it's, it's all kind of, I usually think about, mm. um, but I do love my time off. It's obviously when you start out in your career, it's much more stressful. And like after a week, you're already climbing the walls and you think you'll never work again. And then as you progress, you become more comfortable. Um, I do have friends who are workaholics and never take time off. With me, I, I have been able to really embrace that part of our industry and or our profession and just seriously enjoy every moment. Um, so I think that's my balance. But I definitely wish, I mean, it's still really my, my goal in, in my career is to find more of the calm uh, within, you know, in the eye of the storm, which mm -hmm. I know we're all, we're all trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it sounds like you have a way of balancing it out, you know, that you really take that time for yourself to recalibrate after something stressful. So you're not like living in this high cortisol mode all the time. So I think that's, that's really important. And, and it keeps you doing what you love, you know, without, you know, causing any 
problems, you know, that are long, long-term. So, yeah, you know how it is when you're working on a project, you get sucked into that world completely and mm-hmm. you're immersed in it. You forget about real life and then you're sort of you spit it out at the end of it and you're, you have no idea how much time even passed. So mm-hmm. it takes time, you know, you remember who, that your friends are not necessarily your crew, that you have real friends, you know, and that you, you know, and you're like, remember the things you actually like doing. Um, so I kind of value that recovery process that we all go through because it lets you establish your patterns again and reminds you of who you are and then it gives you strength and then you're off to some other adventure. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jody is, Jody is more of a family man, so I don't know that he could really leave his life and then come back to it all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So I think you're more balanced, Jody. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, it's really hard for me to not have like something on the horizon. I think like that's the, even if it's just like a commercial or, you know, it's like, I think the, the trick is kind of like feeling content without relying on your job to give your yourself like a sense of, um, I don't know, like being like that you're not like uh, valid or like, you know, your life isn't fulfilling if you're not working. Like that's kind of, I think the the trick is like to have a job that you love and you care about and you work really hard at and you like really push on it. But then like when it's not there to still feel like whole. And that that's like a, a thing that I, struggle with a lot um and i think that will be a lifelong struggle (laughs) do you have any like dream job at another point in your life or dream career or passion or i know Um, it's hard when you have small kids because you're really in that mode of like how are you going to care for your family and all of that so yeah i think if i could start over i would be an architect Hmm. wait really i did not know that yeah i think like i i like the idea of like being able to make something and then it's like um static you know (laughs) and also that like environments are so important to me um that it's like I think that I would find that really satisfying mm-hmm. you know like it's so it like it just like I'm sure a lot of people like when you walk into a room it's like how does it feel like where's the right place to sit mm-hmm. you know like how's the light hitting it yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> horrible lighting like why you know and just all those things like I think about a lot I have no education whatsoever in that world but uh I think I would be good at it if I could like start again and learn it you know Jody did you know Tom Richmond went to architectural school before he decided to be a DP I had no idea that so much new about Tom comes every time I bring Tom up someone (laughs) tells me something fascinating yeah (laughs) 
Yeah. I think that's after he graduated from Harvard, he went to Texas and went to architecture school there and then ended up at, at you at, uh, I can't remember where he ended up in California, if it was USC or at, uh, uh, I can't remember, but anyway, but yeah, and that Tom, was what and, he wanted to do. And Tom Richmond, for anyone who's still watching this mm-hmm. or listening to this, is was the cinematographer on the Todd Salons movie that Inbal and I worked on when we were in college. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's interesting. And also a treasure. I mean, he's just such an amazing cinematographer and person. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I also wanted to both ask you, as I know, Inbal just got finished on a film and Jody has been doing mostly commercials during COVID, but I'd like to just hear from both of you what your COVID experience is like. Um, and I know obviously in two different, uh, Jody, I don't know how, I know you've been shooting in the States. I don't know if you've been abroad, but um, I know Inbal was in Greece, right? Mm-hmm. And were you supposed to be in, I mean, the last we spoke, when you came over and we sat in the backyard, I think you were going to like Newfoundland or Nova Scotia yeah. or something. So how'd you end up in Greece? I know I got super lucky. Um, yeah, <laughs> we were, we, uh, I was, um, was working on a small film called The Lost Daughter that Maggie Gyllenhaal um, directed and starring Olivia Coleman. And it was supposed to be set in the US and then COVID hit and the US basically closed its borders. And so we started looking for an alternative and we figured Canada, but then Canada just never opened its borders. I mean, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of this, it it was kind of around June. It was still, nobody knew what was gonna happen the next day in terms of travel and so on. So. I mean, one day it almost felt like Maggie just closed her eyes and like pointed somewhere on the globe. Um, But, you know, we were considered Europe at that time, like the numbers were going down. Greece had barely been touched at that point by the virus. And Greece also has a new 40% tax incentive that Mm. was just put in. So now uh, I think many people will find themselves in Greece. But the story was uh, based on a seaside town and it's uh, so it kind of worked perfectly. I mean, the tr- changing the script around was almost like not a thing. Uh, so I got lucky enough to land on a small Greek island and I was there for three months, I think. Um, and I just got back. You know, I, I think that the way I prefer to be during this pandemic is work on small films that are more intimate and a bit more indie because what I've noticed is that the kind of natural sense of camaraderie is really tainted by social distancing. I don't know if tainted is the word because mm-hmm. obviously we we have to do it. It's, it's not something that is a question, but in almost a subconscious way, it makes the whole experience more disconnected. Even on just the practical level of the fact that you're seeing just half of people's faces and um, the not being in in in-person meetings, not working in an office in the same way we used to. And it just, I don't know if it, I thought that maybe it was my experience specifically because I also traveled to another country and couldn't even understand the language, but it seems to be the narrative for most people that I speak 
too is that it's just everything is more awkward and if you didn't know the people that you're working with before it's a very strange ground to start a, a work relationship on um so i think i got lucky working in greece with you know greek crew um people were warm and were um sort of indispirited in the way that i always appreciate and my next project i think is also going I, i kind of picked a project that would also be smaller and in a remote location um I'm less inclined to work in the more traditional system in the U.S. because I'm a bit worried about how, I don't know, things need to be strict, obviously, but how that then translates into the creative process. Um, but I know that Jody has had many interesting experiences that he shared with me. So um, in the Wild West world of commercials, <laughs> Um, yeah, I've, I've found it really difficult. Um, I find that there's sort of a, you know, like a lot of the time what we're trying to do is like control an environment or like light or movement or whatever it is we're trying to control when we're doing our jobs. And there's it feels like out of control to me. It feels like no matter how um, careful people sort of try to be going into a shoot that when they're actually in the room um, doing it, all of these kind of reflexes kick in and everybody wants to do a, a good job or everyone wants to get it done and get out of there. Um, and it starts to feel dangerous to me. And so I, I've really struggled with that because it's sort of like, um, you know, if you're in the wrong situation, you're inside and there's a lot of people there or whatever, like I, it starts to become like what I'm thinking about more than anything else. Um, and I start to get angry about it. Um, and so like, I'm kind of struggling with that is like how to kind of, Cause like I need to make a living and everything and I'm lucky to be working, but then it's like, how do I kind of just accept the reality that is probably for the next year, I would say. Um, even I think like well after, you know, we hit that percentage of, you know, vaccination that keeps shifting. Um, I think there's still going to be like precautions that, are in effect in a, on a film set for good reason. And that's just like Imbal said, it really kind of impacts the, the feeling on set and like the creative stuff, you know, it's like, it's one thing to plan a shoot and being like, okay, like I've had some great filmmakers be like, okay, so what, you know, we're gonna do like this whole thing is now outside and like, here's how we're gonna make that good. But to like kind of try to force something into like, okay, we're gonna shoot in like a 12 by 12 room with eight cast members. Then I am in a position where it's like, well, okay, so creatively, I would like to get out of this room. That's my, my I'm gonna get creative about like how to like not be here. So like, and that's not, that's like the last place I wanna be. Like that's like the, not who I am. 
you know and it just forces me to be like only thinking about that Hmm. yeah yeah i i did one job in july um that was like a big branded content piece from uh one of the big, you know, the biggest company. And uh, it was all about businesses, small businesses closing in New York. And um, it was with Miles, Jay. And it was so challenging because it was July and we were the first shoot to get a permit in New York. And before the offices of the mayor had even opened and, like it took them like eight days to get back to us. And we were shooting in like five days, you know, we had no prep, like all of these things that just made a hard shoot are just 50 times harder. Um, and, you know, we got through it, but uh, for me, the, the hardest thing about the job, and I think this is how I can really empathize with uh, school administrators and teachers, obviously people who are running hospitals, you know, and, and doctors, you know, no, like that responsibility of all of these people on my crew, when I know nothing about this virus and how to keep people safe and we're just kind of making it up and there's no leadership, you know, on a bigger governmental level, level, that was the most stressful thing for me. Like it brought me to tears five or six times. I've never cried on because of a job. (laughs) Like, and it was, um, it was so stressful. Like I was just, you know, didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I felt at a loss of not knowing what to do. And, and also, as Jody said, um, you know, it was very easy for people to go back to the patterns of serving the director, whatever cost. So by, you know, we start with a pep talk at the beginning of the day, come to me, come to me, come to me, if you're feeling nervous about anything. And by the end of the day, we're like, you know, planning crazy shit to be happening on the street when you can't even park more than two cube trucks yet. So it was- And Miles Miles is very safety conscious. Totally. And like there's people who aren't. So it's like, yeah, that's like almost like a good situation. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, for me, I think like, part of what makes it so hard also is, like you were saying that there isn't a you're kind of making it up so just like little tiny things like okay well so is everyone going to get tested and if they are like what kind of tests and when and where mm-hmm. and, and like does the crew get paid to have to go in mm-hmm. before like those kinds of questions become I, for me, very stressful because it's mm-hmm. like, what am I asking the people around me to do? And like, is this actually safe? Um, is it fair? Um, and as you're kind of like writing those rules, I find that very awkward, you know? Like, totally. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, I luckily was doing the job of smuggler and they were super supportive on every time, every little thing that I wanted to do. They were like, you do do what you feel is best to do. I mean, they were there, there, there. Um, but we tested everyone every day. We had someone on there, but you know what? It becomes kind of irrelevant because we're, you're not bubbling like a movie and you're basically, 
you know, you don't really have four days ahead of time. Even if you pay people to come in and test, they might not be around. You don't know who the full crew is going to be. You have no idea who your teamster is going to be until the night before. Like, I mean, it's just endless. Like there's so many little holes in the plan because you can't contain everyone. I mean, for example, we were shooting nights and uh, I think our sound person forgot we were I don't know what happened or she got another job and she showed up in the motorhome at three in the morning you know and said oh I can't come in tomorrow and uh so we have to replace you but we'd been in a bubble with her for three days four days already like she was negative and so was her boom up and and then the next day we had to bring people in and then the sound mixer shows up on set before we let him in he has a fever you know, and, and so then like, is his, is his kit contempt? I mean, it was like, you know, just everything yeah. starts to just blow up and, um, yeah. you know, it's really hard on the shorter form stuff to, to feel like you're as protected. Whereas I think the movies have shown, have got, you know, have really proven to be such great examples, right? Like they're, they're really learning how to contain and the positive cases are really minimal, right? And then they can, they can really locate that immediately shut it down, everybody quarantines, but you just, you can't do that on a commercial. Like the art yeah, commercial I mean, for like seven huge, days. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a huge difference also with studio yeah. projects and large TV shows. I mean, they have a whole department that yeah. is, if they're making, pro at this point, they're already very experienced. Yeah, um, I, I completely understand. But you know, there's things, I, I hear you guys completely and it could be really stressful, but there's a few positive notes that I've found that I can contemplate on in times when I get kind of very, you know, stressed out about the situation is, uh, first of all, I think that it's a great opportunity to invite your crew into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, mine anyway, because I, I think that we could always be more collaborative with our crews anyway. And now it's like, actually, everyone is putting their lives in danger coming to work. Mm -hmm. So we can have more open conversations. Like, what do you feel is safe for you guys? Because I mean, there's great regulations in place and there's a lot of white papers that have been written in our industry, but every project is so specific to its own needs. And so like, I definitely plan, I tried it with my crew before and hopefully could do it with my crew next time is sit down beginning of the job and say, okay, this is our parameters in how we're making this project. Where are our spots where we feel more um, vulnerable or where do you all feel like unsafe? You know, is it in when you have to go into a secondhand store or is it if you have to go into a prop house or you have to go into a location? And so identify that, but just the fact that the conversation itself could create a, a safe place for everyone and I think it can it can actually help with other conversations if everybody feels that, that they can talk about their safety then they'll also talk to you about other things um, so I thought that was a good way of approaching the the conversation and then in terms of I don't know if it's at all helpful Aaron because I'm sure you feel extremely responsible but I mean there's no way to be 100% safe in this situation, of course. I mean, you could walk out of the testing site and touch something, I don't know. There are so many different ways that this virus could spread. And in a way, I think, I don't know if it's helpful, it's helped me that to be a bit more Zen, like life is so messy 
it's never really going to be a bubble. You know, when I was on the island in Greece, it's like we could try anything, but then I, you know, I pass an old man on the street and he just like taps me on the shoulder or some, you know, like the smallest things of life. Uh, so at some moment we have to kind of be like, well, yeah, I, but I don't know if you guys feel like that can be done. It's helped well, me and to just kind of be Zen about the situation. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think we spoke about this when you came over that day was about, you know, I definitely started our days talking to everybody and everybody, you know, at the end of the day too, wrapping it up with any, any notes on how things went. But this was also right at the beginning. I think we were the first commercial to shoot in New York on the streets, you know, and we were shooting in Washington Heights, which was like the height of the pandemic in New York City. Um, so I definitely think that open communication is super important and a PA coming up and being like, Hey, I don't, I can't do that. You know, like just speaking on how you feel and not feeling like you have to do what someone who has maybe superiority over you on a film set, uh, what they want you to do. Um, and I think as, as the world continues to move forward with this, we're all learning how to live with this, right? I mean, I, I flew home from Egypt on March 13th and I remember, you know, not really knowing what was going on. My kids and husband were already in quarantine for a week because my daughter's school had closed. And I was like, can we go out to dinner? You know, I'd just gotten home from Egypt and he's like, um, Aaron, do you quite know what's happening right now? Like. We, we need to lock down. And I was like, lock down, what does that mean? And I remember like over those first couple of days being like, oh my God, like this is how we're gonna, how are we gonna exist like this? How is it gonna happen? And it's like all of us in, in life, you know, as humans, we learn to adapt, you know? And this was a really, I think these past 10 months have been a really interesting shift in evolution, right? On, on how we are, how kids are growing. I mean, that's a bigger conversation, but yeah. So I do think that there are ways uh, yeah, you have to be Zen about this. There's uh, no other way, you know? I, I think there's also something I've noticed is, you know, like a lot of people in the film business sort of like they have like their year and they're like, I make X and, you know, I'm trying to make mm. X and this, they have sort of their, mm -hmm. whatever they are used to doing or want to do whatever because they're freelancers. And a lot of people had a really fucked year mm -hmm. financially. And then they're coming back to work and I probably feel a lot of time feel lucky to come back to work and that they have a job. But then they're put in this position, whether it's like an AD or a producer or whoever, like you were saying earlier, and it's such a hierarchy and they're put in a position to like serve the people that they're working for and they feel really lucky to be there and they haven't made enough money this year and they just want to do a good job. And I think that can really overwhelm Mm -hmm. everything else in the moment and I've seen that a lot and that makes me nervous mm -hmm. you know like when the people in charge are behaving that way for like a McDonald's commercial you know mm -hmm. um and so it's like I think yeah it's like the financial aspect of it it's like you can sit down and you can talk with your crew about like what do you feel comfortable with but at the end of the day you know, there is this whole other psychological element to it of people just needing to serve. They think they need to serve to do a good job. Mm -hmm. And that's, 
like hard to, to balance safety and that at the same time. For sure. Can I ask you right. guys a question? I guess to yeah. sum things up. So it's, it's mm -hmm. like, um, what, let's imagine that there is a happy ending soon in a few months or a year and we're able to get to some sort of normalcy and resume the way that we shoot um, films and what would you guys I mean Aaron I know you're saying that you're slowly leaving us <laughs> but um but what do you think that you would want to do it doesn't even have to do with work like what are things that were uh, that now are kind of post-COVID bucket list. Erin, you wanna go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I was thinking today while I was walking the dog in Fort Greene Park, uh, was not wearing a mask and breathing actual air. Like I really miss breathing fresh air, especially I think I'm feeling it so much with the cold weather because it feels so cleansing to breathe air and like, wow that's a that's a you know i've been grateful for being able to breathe before but like it was just kind of an interesting thing that i was that was like what i thought about i missed the most um and i think i think the other thing is you know really excited to see how this collective pause we've had in the world right wake some people up, you know, moving forward to how they'd like to see life, how they wanna treat other people, how they wanna like receive and give back, like, you know, all of these things. And I obviously don't think it's gonna be a huge amount of people, but even if it's just a few people who've been like, wow, like you just few people who are still actually thinking about race and didn't just think about it for like the two seconds and after brother Floyd was murdered and put a black box on their Instagram, you know, like people who are actually working to make change. Um, so I think for me, those are the exciting things. Like I look forward to what I'm doing and breathing fresh air again. So. <laughs> um, I've been watching a lot of movies with my five-year-old daughter and um, <clears throat> on a, you know, in a totally selfish way, I've just been, it's like, oh, there's Tokyo. It's like, and just like leaning over to her being like, oh, that's Japan. Like, we're going to go to Japan one day, you know? And just like, or like, that's a beach. You know, we're going to go to the beach one day. And just feeling like, kind of like wistful for being able to expose them to things that they haven't been around for a while like my son who's one has never like had a play date before you know like inside someone's house or like inside our house or um and yeah like those things I think it's like mostly related to my children um because they're so young just like what is sort of like in store for them after this and like wanting to be able to to expose them to things they haven't haven't seen or you know been around in ball that's beautiful jody um 
you know, I think it's interesting because right before the, um, I think there were how many months between the time we finished our job together, I know this much is true, and probably about six months um, before the pandemic started. And after we finished our show, I was like, oh man, like we worked for a full year and lived in a small town upstate, like I need to travel. So I went on this world tour and, you know, went home to Israel, traveled around Europe, went to Brazil. It was epic. Then I went to Sundance, you know, it was a really privileged six months where at the time I was like, wow, I'm kind of living beyond my means. And I'm like going for everything, seeing every friend possible. Like I felt like going to this country today. I just got on a plane. And at the end, I was sort of when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh my God, I didn't work for six months. I was like assuming I'm going to find a job in February. And now it's definitely going to be like the hardest financial period of my life. But I was looking at um, photographs from that time yesterday. And I just thought, I'm so happy I made every one of those decisions. I, I would never regret doing that. And I know that's exactly what I want to do when we're able to do it again. So it's a bit like, I'm, I'm probably never going to regret doing things. It's not doing them that I would regret. So just going on those kind of crazy travel binges and seeing every person that I love, just continuing to do that. And hopefully doing it double next year for all that time we lost. Mm, that's beautiful too. So I think this is a good note to end on. I think we could have talked for quite a lot longer. It was a really such a pleasure having you both. And thank you so much for taking the time today to uh, have the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting yeah, us. Yeah. All right. Have a beautiful weekend and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Hey. Talk soon. Bye. 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 Mm-hmm.